Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 147, From Selling Pews to Temple Dues. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And first of all, we just wanted to wish you a happy Hanukkah. Today's show has nothing to do with Hanukkah, but it is coming out during Hanukkah. It's one of our favorite holidays. We talk about it a lot in this show. And uh, so we thought we'd just start off by wishing you happy Hanukkah. But there is one way in which today's show actually is a little bit connected to Hanukkah, specifically the tradition of giving Hanukkah gelt. Gelt is the Yiddish word for money, and it's been traditional to give the kids a small amount of money for Hanukkah. But in any event, today's guest is Dan Judson, the author of a recent book called Pennies for Heaven, A History of American Synagogues and Money. So I guess there is a connection to the gelt. Actually, before we introduce Dan Judson, let me make another connection to Gelt, since it's also a tradition in America to think about our philanthropic giving around this time of year as the end of the tax year comes up. If you're listening to Judaism Unbound, perhaps you'll consider making a donation of about a dollar for every episode that you listen to. So if you listen every week, maybe you'd consider a gift of $50 or so. If you only listen occasionally, maybe $18. And if you really recognize the value of what we're doing, we're closing in on our one millionth download. We hope that you might consider a larger donation. To make a donation of any size, just go to www.judaismunbound.com donate. And we're really grateful. And that really connects a lot to the subject that we're going to be talking about today how synagogues finance themselves, and the changing nature of how synagogues, and by extension, other Jewish institutions, have financed themselves over the history of the Jewish experience here in America. We love this book so much that we're actually devoting two episodes to talking about it. So this is part one, and next week we hope you'll tune into part two. Often in our series, we bring a history episode on towards the beginning, but this series, since we used the beginning to look back at the Pew study, we're bringing some of our history here at the end. So we hope you'll be able to fold some of this exploration of the history of the support of Jewish institutions in America into a lot of the conversation that we've had over the last few weeks about the changing nature of the Judaism of American Jews. So without further ado, we're excited to welcome our guest, Dan Judson. He is the dean of the Rabbinical School of Hebrew College. Previously, he was the head of professional development and placement at the Rabbinical School of Hebrew College. And prior to that, he was a congregational rabbi. Dan Judson has his rabbinical ordination from the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion of Reform Judaism. And he has a doctorate in Jewish history from Brandeis University. We're thrilled to welcome him to Judaism Unbound. Dan Judson, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you guys so much for having me. Well, I am a real sucker for the kind of book that you wrote, which is kind of this deep dive into a narrow area of Jewish history, American Jewish history that that I happen to be super interested in. I hope our listeners are too. 
We wanted to talk to you at this stage where we've spent some time looking at the demographic studies of the Jewish community, the Pew study five years later, and we've looked at various elements of that. And and now we're wanting to kind of dive into some of the institutions of American Jewish life of the 20th century and before and start to think about sort of what do we need to think about the future of those institutions. I think I wanted to start by asking you just a little bit about why you wrote this book. I mean, you talked about in the intro to the book that that there were records of synagogue finances that had literally not been open in 200 years that you looked at. So if nobody looked at these in 200 years, why did you? I wrote the book because I was interested in a look at uh, religious life that I kind of took things from a different perspective. I'm, I never try and be reductive about religious experiences. That is, people are going to uh, act or pray in a particular way because of economics. But um, as one of my teachers um, says, sometimes when you look at religion through the lens of economics, you see things that you weren't otherwise going to see. You know, I think it's one of the interesting questions is why hasn't anybody looked at this in 200 years? And I think Judaism, money, and religion, it's not a great place for scholars necessarily to be. That is, I think there was probably some, we probably have only now just reached a point where I could write a critical book about religion and money um, without there being an overlay of defending or, you know, the kind of old stereotypes of Jews of being obsessed with money, this kind of thing. I think people have probably stayed away from it uh, in part because of that and in part because if you're going to study religion, you're probably more interested in theology than money. I happen to be interested in both. It does happen to be that it's it's a book that when I carry it around outside, I, I like to sort of hide the title because I'm worried <laughs> about what people might, might think it's all about. But I'd love to get your perspective a little bit as the author of this book and also somebody who is running a rabbinical school on something that we struggle with a lot on the podcast and a lot of times I talk about in public presentations and I find it challenging to talk about in part because of the reactions that people have, which is that when you start talking about Jewish institutions, in particular synagogues, as kind of economic players, and you start to use metaphors from the business world or language from the world of business or economics, people get very defensive and they say, no, you, we can't use this language. We can't talk about this. this. This metaphor is not good because this is religion and not business. And on the one hand, I totally agree with that. And on the other hand, it's quite clear and it's clear from your book that synagogues have to also survive economically. And so we have to talk about these things. And so I'm curious from you whether how you reflect on that from your position and also whether you found some ways to talk about this stuff that doesn't get those defenses up. That's a good question. I'm, I was for many years a rabbi and my board used to tell me all the time when I'd want to spend money on something that, um, that, Oh, you know, uh, uh, the congregation is not, we're not, a, you know, we're, we're, we're not a business. If you, you want to spend money on this rabbi, we're not a business. We're not a business. And then when people wouldn't pay their dues, then somebody would say, Rabbi, we're a business. We have to, we have to make sure that everybody's paying up. This is not some, you know, this is not money. It's not free, everything around here. So there's no question. Look, look, synagogues are part of the American system of uh, capitalism. That is um, the free market. That's the word I was looking for. The free market um, is at play in synagogues as it is at play in every other corner of American cultural life, American economic life. 
Um, and so synagogues, the way I think about it is um, synagogues are not businesses, but they are nonprofits. And they are nonprofits within a, um, a system where they don't do a good job and they're not attracting members and they're not attracting revenue. They're going to go out of business and stop being synagogues. So I think to use some language in business, I, I use all the time, some language in business is not appropriate. I don't, I, um, to talk about investment in synagogues, I don't talk about investing in synagogues, but I do talk about competition all the time, right? That um, synagogues face competition and they need to, um, they need to, uh, to sort of face that square on. There's no given that any particular synagogue should exist or will exist no matter how long it's been around. You and I were just talking before about Congregation Mishkan Tefillah, which still exists, but has been the oldest conservative synagogue in Boston and moved three times and is now kind of hanging on. But it, when, it, when it left, its, uh, it was a big synagogue in the suburbs from the 1950s till just about five or six years ago. And it was a pretty big deal for the Jewish community that this standard bearer congregation for so many years, the congregation in Boston, um, was closing down and moving to a much smaller space in another synagogue. It's like any other business. There's no guarantees. I don't know that a lot of our listeners have really thought a lot about the history of how synagogues raised money, but it's it's super fascinating. And I'd love to go back to the beginning of synagogues in America before there was a United States of America. And there weren't very many synagogues, but I was fascinated that it, it sounds like one of the major ways that they would get revenue would be sort of to auction off or sell the various honors in the synagogue. So could you describe a little bit about what that was like and what that really meant and how that worked? So auctioning off is still done in some shuls today. Tits, uh, typically Sephardi shuls still do it in America today. But by and large, we've stopped the process. So yes, indeed, we've stopped the process of auctioning off synagogue honors. Um, the process looked a little different depending on the synagogue. But for example, when the Torah was taken out, there would be literally an auction in the synagogue over who would get the right to say the first and second blessings over the Torah. And it might be sort of very surprising for contemporary Jews to hear that, but this was a practice which dates back to the Middle Ages and was ubiquitous throughout the Jewish world. Although interestingly, it's not mentioned at all in, early, in rabbinic sources. It's not mentioned in the Talmud, but we have sources you know, from the late Middle Ages that um, it was practiced pretty much everywhere. So in some, somebody had the genius idea to do this, and then it flashed around the Jewish world um, successfully. Uh, and so in American synagogues, it might look like that the Torah would be taken out of the ark, and often it was done in Spanish, and they would, in Spanish, ask who wanted to bid. No money, of course, would be changed hands on Shabbat itself. You would only raise a hand, somebody would keep track um, how much that the bid was actually um, for. My sense is that at times the bidding was rigged, as it were. That is, if somebody, if it was somebody's son's bar mitzvah, you know, that person was going to win the bidding for the honor. But I think this, just as interesting as this is, one of the stories I tell in the book is the story of how it came to an end in America. And it came to an end in, uh, I can date it pretty precisely to 1825, to the very first Reformed congregation in America was a congregation in Charleston. 
And the congregation goes back to the 1780s. Uh, and it was a group of 37 men who uh, wrote a, a protest, a revolt against the congregation. And they had a list of things that they wanted to, they didn't call it a reformed congregation, but they wanted reforms in the congregation. It was a um, traditional congregation. And it is a four-page document. It is the first document of, of, of we have in America of Reformed Judaism, basically. And the first two pages are given over to the kinds of things which you guys have covered on this podcast before about what makes Reformed Judaism different. Um, they wanted English. They wanted sermons in English. They wanted less davening. That is, they, did, they, wanted, uh, they didn't want as long a prayer service. But then half the document is given over to they hated breaking out the Torah and having an auction for it. They thought it was, they thought it was, um, I'll tell you, the, the problem that they saw was that um, Jews would, when the Torah was broken out, some Jews would see that and they would take the opportunity to get up and go to the courtyard and start drinking. This is now 1825. So to avoid uh, having to be there. To, yes, the- exactly, Dan. Yeah, of course. To <laughs> avoid having to be there. What it, precisely what the document says is that they would do it a few times, but then sort of later in the year, when they, ha- when they were done with their generosity, I think, towards the synagogue, they would go out into the courtyard. And mm-hmm. what the document says, which is so fascinating, is that they would set an ill example for the eyes of strangers that might come and see them. What are they talking about? They're talking about the fact that in Charleston, the synagogue is right next to you know, all the other buildings where people live. People live cheek by jowl in these, um, in these early American cities. They were worried that Christians were going to walk by and see them outside in the courtyard and if they struck up a conversation and say, ask them, you know, what, what, why are you not in services with the rest? Of, aren't services, isn't your religious services still going on? <laughs> I think they were worried that they would say, um, well, we needed to leave because we didn't want to pay for something. And that would <laughs> raise all sorts of bad yeah, ideas yeah. about Jews and money and religion. This was the end from that moment, it sort of reformed Judaism developed without the idea of auctioning off Torah honors. And the other movements in Judaism came along as well, so that, you know, by the late 19th century, you didn't have a lot of auctioning off of Torah honors in America. The main kind of rabbi, we'd probably call him a conservadox rabbi in the late 1840s, Isaac Leeser, um, writes a note saying that this is an ill, ill, this is kind of an ill practice that should be gotten rid of, and we need to do a different way to raise money for synagogues. Before we get to the next way, I just wanted to remark that one of the most fascinating things that I read in the book and that you mentioned here, but I want to reemphasize it, is that in many synagogues till quite late, this whole auction business was conducted in Spanish at a time when people didn't speak Spanish anymore. Like it, 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 you could understand it as an immigrant custom from people who spoke Spanish as a first language, maybe their children. And here we're talking in the early 1700s or something like that. But here we're talking in the early 1800s. 
as late as. And, you know, it, it reminds me of that story as a sort of a famous joke about why people uh, bow at a certain point in the synagogue and, and, you know, they come up with all these theological reasons. And the, the real reason is because in the original synagogue's building, there was a beam there. And, and when people got to that part of the sanctuary, they always had to lean down to get under the beam. And this is why we actually bow. And it's like, it's one of these things where it, it just struck me as so crazy, but also so familiar that people would do a certain thing and would insist on a certain way of doing things, even if that way just meant speaking in a different non-Jewish language, because this is kind of the way we've always done it. And this is part of the tradition. It, it was insane to me. Well, yes, <laughs> yes. We're, we're very bound to tradition. Dan, you probably have, you know, through however many podcasts you've done, you've probably come to that conclusion. Um, one of the other things that I took away from this is that this practice of auctioning off Torah honors was, as I mentioned, ubiquitous throughout the Jewish world. And the reason that in America it comes to a quick end is not any sort of great theological problem. It's a problem of sociology. It's Jews who are worried about what their non-Jewish neighbors are going to think of us. So as interesting it is as Spanish continues in this weird way, in this custom for hundreds of years, even though we're not speaking Spanish, the practice also ends in some ways to me just as strangely because we're worried about non-Jewish neighbors, nothing about you know, how we think Judaism should be done, or um, it's about straight up our own concern about how others are gonna perceive us. I, like Dan, was, uh, we've got multiple Dan, so I, like our host Dan, was also really taken by, by some of those early stories um, about these auctions. But I also wanted to ask you about, about what came next. Um, there's all sorts of, fascinating evolutions that we start to see that you describe in your book um, as we move forward in the 1800s and as we continue in Jewish history. And I'd love to hear about that. And in particular, um, one development that I thought was incredibly fascinating was that as the, these auctions shifted away, we had another custom that folks today might shake their heads at um, that I had never heard about. So I had heard about the auctions, but I had never heard about this idea of selling literal seats um, so we talk about butts in seats at, at synagogues and how we have to think about, you know, transcending the idea that everything's about getting butts in seats. But in certain eras, it literally was about selling seats um, in the same way you would a concert or something else. So um, as, as we move forward a little bit in the 1800s, what are some of the next evolutions in how congregations go about finding money? That is, the I think, one of the big stories of my book, actually, because... Um, it's how 19th century congregations uh, funded themselves almost entirely was by the selling of seats. Before I get into that history, and I think it's an important and interesting history, I just wanted to point out there are two ancillary ways that um, synagogues also raised money in the 19th century. One is uh, there's still some auctioning, as you mentioned. One is dues. I guess there are three ancillaries. One is there was some level of dues, but not what it is today, a very minor, that was an, um, a minor way synagogues raise money. Um, but another way, and I offer this up to all synagogue presidents um, when I speak to synagogues and they, they all want to take me up on it, is one of the ways synagogues raise money is that they would fine people. They would fine you if you showed up late for a meeting. They would fine you if you 
spoke, you know, spoken services. They would fine you if you sang louder than the chazan. They would fine you if you caused a ruckus in a board meeting. They would fine you if you wanted, if they wanted you to be the vice president and you didn't want to be the vice president, you'd have to pay your way out of it with a fine. So there's this whole fine. They didn't raise a lot of money this way. It was a small amount, but I always offer that up and synagogue presidents are usually pretty psyched when they hear that, that they, they had more power than they ever thought they did and could start finding people. Okay, that's a side story. So the main story is this question about, um, is about um, selling seats. So the broader picture here is that in Europe, uh, synagogues primarily funded themselves um, with a tax that the government was putting on the Jewish community which individual Jews paid, which the government would then take a cut of, basically, and that money was then filtered back down to pay for salary and upkeep of the synagogue. So there was a um, compulsory tax in Europe, for the most part, is the way that synagogues were funded. In an American context, obviously, with separation of church and state, there was no way for a compulsory tax on the Jewish community to exist. So synagogues had to figure out how to raise money um, without, without such taxes. Uh, they looked at their Christian neighbors, and to some, this happened a little bit in Europe, certainly, but their Christian neighbors were funding themselves, Protestant churches for the most part, funded themselves by selling pews. The synagogue would divide itself up into a few different sections. So you mentioned the same way that you would have concert tickets. You know, the closer you sit to the Rolling Stone, whoever is you're going to see a concert of, I just dated myself dramatically, but... <laughs> Uh, the closer you sit, the more expensive those seats were. So synagogues would divide up maybe into four sections, A, B, C, and D. And then they would set a minimum value for the A seats. So in Cincinnati in 1840, that minimum value might have been around $50. $50. The B might have been around 40 C might have been around 30 some synagogues would then, within those, each section, they would auction off each and every seat in that section, the minimum value being the values for that, for that particular section. Women's seats in the gallery, so now in the 19th century, there, there, uh, there was gallery seats for women, same thing. Um, they weren't as valuable as the A seats for men, but they still were, you know, they were sort of as valuable as the B seats for men, if you were. People would... So sorry, synagogues would set a value for the seat. Let's call it $50, make it easy. You would pay the $50, and then every year, synagogues would charge you a 10 to 12% seat fee. Some people, if they wanted that A section or a B section, or, and they couldn't afford it, they would take out a loan from the synagogue. So synagogues all had um, documents about their practice, how much interest you'd have, how much you'd have to put down up front and how much interest you had to pay yearly for the loan you would take out for seats. So seats for the synagogues were like running little, little kind of banks here. So you would pay, uh, you might pay in a particular year, the seat license fee, that 10%, and paying back on the down payment for the principal of the seat. Here's the thing though, you owned that seat. It, it, don't think about today in a synagogue where you, you know, somebody's name might be on it. Literally, you own the seat like you would any other piece of property. If I owned a seat, Lex, and you showed up late, you could not sit in my seat. You wouldn't sit in my seat. I owned it. What it also meant, though, is that if I died, that seat would go to my inheritors, 
who also had to pay the yearly fee on it. If I left the congregation, either because I stopped liking what the rabbi was doing, they were getting too political or they weren't, all the reasons Jews leave synagogues, I had a right to sell the seat back to the synagogue and the synagogue would have to pay me fair market value for that seat. So I never found a case of this, but there are a few cases in churches of people actually speculating on seats. That is, they buy the seat at, you know, $40, and then 10 years later, they'd leave town. And if they bought 10 seats in the church and the value had gone up because it was a popular church and those church seats were now worth $50, they just would have made, you know, $10 times 10 is $100. So I've never found speculating on synagogue seats. Um, but what you find a lot of is when people would leave the synagogue, they would be faced with a decision about whether they just wanted to donate the seat back to the synagogue, which the synagogue would then instantly say a seat was worth $50. That was a $50 donation in 1850. So good money for the synagogue, which so most people would just simply donate the synagogue seat back. Some people would sell it to other synagogue members, and some people would demand that the synagogue pay them that value. Synagogues in the 1850s and 60s and 70s um, also had no compunction about aggressively going after people who owed them money. And it is not unusual in an 1855 board minute to read about the lawyer that has been sent after Mr. Goldberg, who hasn't made good on their seat payments. But they would really go after people hard in a way that we wouldn't, I think, recognize. We're much more gentle, actually, today, uh, probably because um, the competition for people is much higher today than it was in the 1850s, where you could count more on Jews being members of synagogues. You just cited a little bit and opened up a question that I wanted to ask. You talked about Christians, you talked about churches, and the, and in this thread about speculating um, for for seats in the church or in the synagogue. And I'd love to follow up on that because I think that there in general seem to be, from from what I understood of your book, some fascinating dynamics in terms of how Jews are learning from what churches nearby are doing um, and also ways that they're distinct from those churches around. So I'd love to hear from you what in this time period of, you know, loosely the 19th century, I mean, it's a big time period, but what is it that Jews are doing that they're learning from churches in their neighborhoods? And what is it that they're doing that distinguishes them from churches in their area on the issue of financing? Beginning with what's called in American history, the second great awakening in the 1820s, particularly with a guy named William Grandison Finney. Quick edit that we needed to add after this interview. It's Charles Grandison Finney, not William Grandison Finney, if you want to go and Google and learn more. He began preaching the notion of a free church. He began preaching to say that, wait a second, people shouldn't have to own a seat in a church to be able to hear, you know, to be able to hear the gospel. Anybody should be able to come and hear the gospel. And if we say that you have to own a seat, so synagogues, for synagogues, you had to own a seat to be a member. Same thing is happening in churches. He led a crusade, as it were, against this idea and promulgated, promoted the idea of what's called a free church. No seats, no, no, nobody owned nothing. And what that started was, the way then that they raised their money was he got a few wealthy, um, often got a few wealthy folks to sponsor him, to pay his salary and to sponsor the upkeep for a church. And it started um, in the Christian world 
what we recognize today is simply passing the plate. That is, people, you know, no obligation, but people of their own uh, kind of free heart um, giving as they're moved on a Sunday morning to the upkeep of the church. The free church movement kind of goes away. The big idea, though, that comes out of the institutional church and the commitment to move away from people paying for pews is what's called stewardship. Stewardship is a theological idea. The idea is quite simply that God wants you to give to the particular church that you find yourself in, that your, um, your resources, your time are God's time and resources. And your giving to, to the church is simply giving back what's in some part not even yours to begin with. The difference between that and synagogues, which we're saying you have to own a seat, what would eventually be you have to pay dues as a kind of tax. If you just hold those differences up for a second, for Jews, excuse me, for Jews, there was a language around obligation and community. For Christians, the language starting in the latter part of the 19th century, but certainly until today, is about this is what God wants from you. We don't speak theologically, but if you would imagine for one second a rabbi getting up on a Shabbos morning and saying, you know, God wants you to give, not tzedakah, God wants you to give for the upkeep of this synagogue. This is what I theologically believe. I presume that that rabbi is fired What's a Shabbos Sunday? You know, that is Saturday night, Sunday morning. Like it's unimaginable for a rabbi to get up and say, "I think God wants you to give to this synagogue." It's much more imaginable, and it's it's part of what is known as stewardship. That is, what you own is what God owns, and you should give to the church that you're the church and community that you're a part of. So the difference that develops is this notion of, I would say, theological um, voluntarism of Christianity versus the obligation of Judaism. And if you just think about sort of the, the, this, even the stereotypes of how we perceive Judaism and Christianity and the relationship of obligation and giving out of voluntarism, it all makes pretty clear sense. Um, another way of sort of framing this is my, um, my teacher, um, James Hudnut Bumler, who's the kind of scholar of Protestant Christianity does, is that churches follow the NPR model and synagogues stick to the club model. The NPR model is, you know, we're going to have a fundraising drive and everybody who wants to should just give, but we're going to, we're going to keep providing services and keep going. The club model is you have dues and an upfront fee to get into the, get into the club. So Dan, before we move on to the next iteration in the story of how synagogues finance themselves, I, I have two questions that I think are related about these first two phases, you know, the selling of honors and then the, the selling of seats. The simple question is kind of how much did they make? You know, like what was the <laughs> financial condition of these early synagogues compared to kind of what we think of a synagogue today? And I think related to that is, I guess my question is, how effective were these tools? Because I'm thinking about when my wife particularly, it's usually my wife, but sometimes I am offered some kind of honor at the synagogue and we don't even have to pay for it. And we generally say, you know, I prefer not to do it, you know, because uh, I don't really feel so honored. I mean, I know you're trying to honor me, but I don't really 
take it as an honor. It's more of an obligation. And I, I'd kind of rather not do that. I'd, I'd like to sit actually. And also, you know, I'd like to sit in the back of the synagogue. So I'm not going to be paying for the uh, A-level seats. And so, you know, I guess I'm I'm curious about whether Jews have really changed since then. And back then, people really were desperate for these honors and for these seats. And, and why? Was it because of their piousness? Or was it because that was somehow uh, seen positively in society? Or it wasn't really all that effective because people didn't care all that much more about these honors and fines and whatever than we do now. And that's why they had to move to a different mechanism. They did well. They did well. The reason I can say that is because um, there was a proliferation of synagogues throughout the 19th century um, that was successful. Not every synagogue, certainly, but many synagogues um, were built and sustained in the 19th century with the model of owning seats. And if you look at who was the president of the synagogue, who were the vice presidents of the synagogue, the correlation between president and vice president in the 19th century, the correlation between president and vice president and wealthiest merchant in town was quite high. Um, in, in, one, in Buffalo in the late, uh, you know, in the 1860s, I think I, I, I traced this, the same wealthiest merchant, merchant was the president of like three different synagogues because he kept being unhappy with the one synagogue and moved to the other synagogue where he became the president. But just to say they were attracting the wealthiest Jews. So I can presume that they were able to attract because of social cultural forces that encouraged Jews to be um, members of synagogues, that they were doing, this was a system that worked. I think the reason they didn't move to a system of sort of God wants you to give to was theology. We don't have that kind of theology, but also because we didn't need to. We didn't need the theology because obligation worked. Buying seats worked. And do you have a sense of why it worked? Like, did why people felt obligated? Like, why would people pay these fines? Like, I would just leave the synagogue. So Jonathan Sarna would say people, these, he, he would say, I think I'm overstating this whole business with fines. That in 1825 is the first year, which he has amazingly kind of um, written about. In 1825, um, two synagogues sprang up in the same city. It was in Charleston and in New York. I've already, we talked about Charleston a little bit already. Um, but in Charleston, when these reformed Jews didn't get what they wanted, they didn't get rid of Torah honors and they didn't get rid of, they started their own synagogue, the first reformed synagogue in America. All of a sudden, if you lived in Charleston, you had a choice of synagogues. His claim is that if you were fined, why in the world would you pay? You just walk across the street to another synagogue. So I think he's basically right, except... I have found fines going into the early 20th century that fining and uh, sort of staying a part of synagogues must have still been a part of synagogue culture. I think the reason, Dan, is community. I mean, I do think ultimately people belonged to synagogues because synagogues were and remain sort of the central vehicle by which Jews identify. And if you were living in Savannah or Cincinnati, or some town, uh, this is what it meant to be, you know, you needed to be a part of the community. So the obligation to join a synagogue was significant. So moving forward a little bit, um, you've alluded to the to the concept of dues a little bit so far, but not so much. And, and people listening may have noticed that you haven't talked about dues so much because the concept of dues is so predominant in how we conceptualize synagogue funding today. Um, but so I'd love to hear from you on this sort of evolution track we're looking at, 
where exactly do dues start to peter in and when do they grow even more commonplace and for what reasons? So the movement to eliminate owning seats begins um, with a few figures, um, Stephen Wise in New York being one of the most notable. Um, people are familiar maybe if they live in New York City with something called the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue, but they don't know why it's called the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue. If you ask even people I think who go to the synagogue, they'll tell you it's the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue because Stephen Wise, who was the rabbi of a synagogue in Portland, Oregon, was called to become the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in New York City in the early 1900s, the largest and most prosperous synagogue in the country. He told them he would only become their rabbi if they um, would not exert control over what he could say from the bimah, what he could say publicly as a rabbi. And they told him, no, we have control over what you're I'm doing. I'm shorthanding all of this. They told him, no, we want control. He told them basically, go away. I don't want to be the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in that case. And from him, basically in every rabbinic contract and to this day, there is something called freedom of the pulpit, which comes from Stephen Wise saying to Temple Emmanuel, no, you can't control what I'm going to say. So that's why it's called the free, the free Synagogue, except that's not totally why it's called the Free Synagogue. It's also called the Free Synagogue because Stephen Wise had another freedom in mind. He thought that it should be free from paying for seats. So he was an early advocate of getting rid of paying for seats. He said the religious conviction is better served um, with a voluntary gift. So he was an early proponent. It didn't really catch on, though until right after World War I. World War I saw a high point for conversations around democracy. The zeitgeist of the time was all about democracy. Woodrow Wilson said, we are going to make the world safe for democracy. That's why we went to World War I. Um, the, uh, we're about to celebrate uh, next year the anniversary, the centennial of suffrage. The suffrage amendment was passed in 1919. The buzzword in 1918, after World War I, was all about democracy. And yet, when you walked into a synagogue, the seats were stratified based on how much you could pay. So I found a, a president of the synagogue saying in Louisville, Kentucky, you hear all about democracy these days. Democracy is on everybody's lips. There should be no more place of democracy than in a synagogue. And uh, another rabbi, Leo Franklin in Detroit, had a great saying. He said there should be no, in the synagogue, there should be no uh, snobocracy. Um, <laughs> people should be able to pay and sit wherever they want. Um, so there was this movement after World War I to egalitarianize, financially speaking, the synagogue, to democratize and egalitarianize the synagogue. So basically, what happened was, that people were not paying, they weren't buying seats in the same way they used to. And when synagogues looked around, why aren't they buying seats in the same way that they used to? They came to the understanding that there were cultural factors that work. The zeitgeist was all about democracy and people didn't want to be part of a system that was um, sort of upholding uh, a snobocracy, forgive, you know, for lack of a better word, approach to synagogue finance where the wealthier got better seats and better deals. So I think the, the cultural move towards democracy 
influenced directly, and we have direct testimony of this, influenced the way that synagogues finance themselves. I should say one other thing about this. The 1920s, the exact same time, the 1920s saw the building of lots of big synagogues. Um, your, your people listening to the show are probably familiar with the name Mordechai Kaplan. Um, Mordechai Kaplan began something called the Synagogue Center. He had a vision for synagogues that would be beyond just places to pray, but would be places where, you know, have schoolhouses, social halls, gyms, uh, uh, the shul with a pool phenomenon, which might be some folks might have heard of, arise in the 1920s. So all of a sudden, people are starting to build, following on Kaplan's ideas, people are starting to build these mega synagogues, uh, found synagogues which in today's dollars in the early 1920s are costing $16-$17 million in these massively expensive synagogues. If you're going to spend that much on a synagogue and you tied membership exactly to the number of seats that you had, you limited the number of people who could become members. So if that, makes, that makes sense, yeah? Yeah, I mean, just to clarify, because there are only a certain number of seats in the room, exactly. if the, and you can have that many members, you can't have more than that. Exactly. I mean, pretty straightforward. But the problem was, if you have more members than more seats, what do you do on Yontif? That is, what do you do when Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur come along and everybody wants to go to shul if nobody owns seats anymore and if you've got more members than seats? So congregations made a special exception. We're not going to own seats anymore, except we're going to sell seats just on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So a lot of, you know, a lot of your listeners might go to synagogues to even today where they say, oh, our synagogue still does this thing where on Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, people actually have to buy seats or they get assigned seats with their membership. And it's because at this transitional period, synagogues didn't want to entirely give up on this notion of owning seats because they wanted people to feel comfortable that they would have a seat on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So you could become a member of a synagogue, but then you'd have to pay additionally to make sure you'd have a seat. Or as lots of synagogues do, they started having double sessions, double session Kol Nidre, Kol Nidre starting at 6.30, and that is the big prayer service in Yom Kippur. You needed two of them to accommodate all the members. So you had kind of intersecting ideas. One is synagogues needed to, wanted more members than the number of seats. And two is um, this, this cultural push um, towards democracy, which was very palpable at the time. Synagogues, initially, if you read the kind of presidents and rabbis, initially they're encouraging congregants to give what they can, a kind of sliding, what we would call a sliding scale today. That is, you would, be based, you would pay dues based on your income. That was a result of the income tax that had been put in place in the early 20th century. You can see some of the exact same language that was used to defend the income tax was used um, now about a sliding scale for synagogues. But most synagogues, by, by let's say World War II, most synagogues have given up on selling seats and they moved to dues, just one fee. And I think they've moved to one fee and not a sliding scale based on income. It's just easier. Everybody pays the same thing. You know, we're going to give a break to people if they've got hard financial situations or they're senior citizens, and it's the system we know today. And, and it seemed like it worked pretty well, right? Because they were able to build these big synagogues, and there was also an economic boom and a large immigration around that time. So, Dan, it worked very well um, until 1929. It didn't work so well as nothing worked so well. Um, so, you know, to say, to say a word about the Depression, 
it fascinated me in both ways. That is how well synagogues did during the depression and at the same time, how much they struggled were both fascinating. So synagogues uh, muddled their way through. Actually, more synagogues were created in the 1930s than had existed previously. Some of that is a result of immigration. Some of that is a result of the fact that rabbis were forced to leave their synagogue because the synagogue wanted to cut their salary in half. And so they'd go try and start a new synagogue on their own. So you had a proliferation of smaller synagogues, actually, in the, in the, in the era of the Depression. But you also saw, um, I quote in the, in the book at length, um, a rabbi speaking at the National Convention for the Rabbinic Assembly in the 1930s, who is talking about how the synagogue should fire, basically, cantors, principals of schools, school teachers, and the only people that they should pay are rabbis. It was a kind of naked move to keep rabbis paid. But for the most part, synagogues made it through the Depression. They cut expenses to the bone and muddled their way through. So, for better or for worse, we are going to pause here. I'm so, so sorry. I know this is not the most obvious, clear place to have a pause in the conversation. It's clearly in the middle of our conversation, but we are going to encourage you to hear the rest next week uh, as we journey forward through the 20th century and really hone in mostly on the ramifications of all of this stuff for today. What does the history of synagogue fundraising and the selling of seats and auctioning off honors and all of this stuff. How does that play into conversations about contemporary Judaism? We're excited to share that with you when it comes out next Friday. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. And we want to close it out in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And, of course, you can hit us up via email at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we really, really do appreciate any amount of financial donation you are able to send our way. And you can do that at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate with either a monthly recurring donation or a one-time gift. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week for part two of this conversation. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>